Pieta, Shi of Blessed Renewal, is a staunch ally and source of respite for not just the lamp bearer but the hallowed sentinels as well. Her blood is possessed of a unique magic that revives, allays contagion, and heals wounds as is demonstrated by the Sanguinaric's vials within which her humor is held. To understand Pieta's motives and steadfast conviction, however, we need look no further than her name, charged as it is with significance. The etymology of Pieta can be traced to ancient Latin roots, derived from Beatus, a term that means fortunate or blissful, later shaped into piety and religiosity. This is a wellspring of faith for Pieta as she views her gifts as heaven sent from Aureus himself. Now, Pieta also comes to us in the form of Michelangelo's 15th century sculpture, Madonna della Pieta, in which the Virgin Mary is depicted lamenting her son Jesus' death. Pieta, in this case, translates to pity. An abstract parallel can be inferred in Pieta of Blessed Renewal, who laments the fall of Mornstead and feels great pity for her wayward, corrupt, hallowed brothers and sisters. If we delve even further into the language, Pieta can be derived from the ancient Greek Petra, meaning rock or stone. Fascinating indeed, as the odd stone item was once given to her as a child and when offered by the lamp bearer, she divulges as much. That stone, it looks different somehow, but I know it. When I was a girl at the orphanage, there was a very kind woman, Iris. She gave it to me. Pieta's etymological character doesn't end here. Before she was adopted into the Hallowed Sentinels, she bore the name Eliane, and this is the name of her true, umbral-plagued identity as Eliane the Starved. The name is a derivative of Hebrew, which can loosely be translated to God has answered, or God is my strength. This name enlightens us to the sinister source of Pieta's power. In truth, she is host to an umbral parasite, an experimental abomination endowed with the abilities of the putrid mother, the realm of the dead's insatiable god. God indeed has given Pieta strength, but its source comes not from Aureus heaven, rather umbral's cold hell. The Light Reaper Bane of Lampbearers and the Dark Crusader's mission in Mornstead has claimed the lives of countless in obedience to his creator's dark wishes. Born as a hybrid of Rogar energies and an umbral parasite, Adir fears the umbral lamp's immunity to his corruption, so charges the Light Reaper with ruthlessly extinguishing the flickering flame of intrepid bearers. So why is it that this most formidable of Rogar comes to the fief of the chill curse? A surface-level explanation can be found in this stigma, showing the Reaper's dogged pursuit of Paladin Isaac as he quests to cleanse the Sentinel Beacon within the Fief, a vile shadow disrupting Crusader efforts. But the Fief holds many secrets and sorrows. Kinringer was once a vibrant hinterland until its Lord York attempted ancient magic to bring his drowned niece to life. He instead unleashed a terrible curse that consumed his people and encased his land in an icy tomb. The curse is umbral in nature, and the realm of the dead has a strong presence within the fief's desolate tundra. A creature himself born of umbral, 
The Light Reaper is acutely attuned to its magic and manifestations of its god. The curse that destroys Kinringer acts as a lure that draws the Light Reaper's attention, and possibly what ultimately brings him here, spurred by the dread his master feels. Upon alighting in Kinringer, the Reaper seeks to annihilate all creatures stained by the putrid mother, which brings him in direct confrontation with the Hollow Crow, the grotesque abomination of Lord York himself. Their fight is savage, immortalized in this stigma, and its direct consequence severely weakens the Hollow Crow. Bloodied and injured, it hobbles to its roost to convalesce. This explains why the Crow doesn't fight the Lampbearer directly during its boss encounter. Its injuries suffered at the Light Reaper's hands leave it much depleted. The Hallowed Sentinels have fallen to depravity as Adir's madness corrupts from within. But there are those brothers and sisters who remain dauntless and wish to see their order restored to purity. They are the Fidelis, led by the righteous Captain Stomond. These Sentinels plot covertly to convince Judge Cleric of the Order's fall to perfidy, for they fear discovery will brand them heretics, guilty of the highest treason. If they're found out, their dream will surely end in nightmare, precisely the reality that transpires. Rumors circulate among the Sentinels of the radical sect wishing to end crackdowns and massacres, wishing to invite Rogar invasion, or so the twisted brothers and sisters believe. Tancred, master of castigations, is tasked with uprooting the conspiracy of torturing and eliminating the Fidelis. This stigma shows members hanged as Tancred spews caustic warnings against such transgressions. For Stomond, the guilt is unbearable. His actions led to the deaths of those whose trust he held, a sentiment echoed in the lore of his armor. Each hallowed sentinel who joined the Fidelis fully accepted that they were risking their life by doing so, but after Tancred learned of their existence and he and those loyal to him carried out their murderous purge, Stomond could not dispel the troubling notion that all of that Fidelis blood was on his hands. This instigates a contemptuous blood feud between the two men that cannot end until one of them is slain. It's this uniting story arc that makes the Fidelis captain a summonable NPC for Tancred's boss fight. Their grave connection is further supported by the fact that Stomond must be summoned as a prerequisite for unlocking the hidden weapon art for Tancred's mancatcher. Generations before the five radiant beacons of the Sentinels were entirely corrupted by Rogar energies, realization dawned that their luster was fading while in the presence of the Rune of Adir. Sacrifice, immense sacrifice, was needed to sustain the beacons and preserve them against malfeasance. A story of pain endured surrounds each of the beacons, the clues of which can be divined from close scrutiny. Over time, these rituals grew more twisted and barbaric, especially as the sentinels themselves descended to madness. Some may have even weakened rather than invigorated the radiant magic, such is the insidious nature of a deer's influence. Latimer, first among the sentinels to endeavor this, performed ritual decapitation in imitation of his divine god Aureus to preserve the beacon around the forsaken fen and to protect the lives of those exiled here. 
The Calrath Beacon tells the story of a noble woman who turned to a deer worship for wealth and power, and to resist takeover by the foreign hallowed sentinels. Honored nobles and fellow visionaries, you placed your trust in me. And did I not deliver on all of my promises? She turned in secret many to his cause, but her intrigue was discovered. In chains, the sentinels dragged her like a commoner to the city's beacon. They strung her on the altar, drained her blood to fuel a radiant spell to bolster the beacon's magic. We can see the remains of her corpse in petrified agony. Within the fief of the chill curse, there rests beneath pulsing magic, a coffin wrapped in chain link. This is the coffin of Lucy, niece to Lord York, who governed Kinringer. Agonizing sorrow drives York to forbidden magic and attempt to revive her lifeless body. We see Lucy's funeral procession head towards the beacon, and perhaps York seeks to use its powerful magic to fuel his ritual. Instead, a terrible curse freezes Kinringer, York undergoes mutation, and Lucy's spirit lingers. The Lord sacrificed all and lost all. The beacon that sits atop the Tower of Penance is more puzzling. A corpse is held within one of the tower's medieval torture devices, the unfortunate soul recipient of slow death. Who this is may be up to speculation, but a scholar of umbral magic named Geoffrey was arrested for his blasphemous research and sent to the tower in chains. His dagger rests on the exterior bridge, and this stigma shows Geoffrey within his cell. It's possible Tancred sacrificed this crazed heretic to sustain the beacon. An alternative is that it's the corpse of a radiant purifier sent by the Church of Orion Radiance to uncover apostasy within the Sentinels, only to themselves be judged a sinner and damned to execution. After all, the accoutrements of a purifier are found nearby. Judge Cleric herself sacrifices to sustain the Empyrean Beacon in a ritual where her hand is severed. Peculiar that it's a hand, as a deer's disciples take as symbol of their god his massive hand and often mutilate their own in reverence. If we scrutinize closely, indeed we see a hand, albeit monstrous, on the altar. Surprisingly, Judge Cleric's hands are intact when we confront her. My best guess is that she's a master illusionist able to conjure false images. She disguises her rogue corruption well, after all. But let me know your own thoughts in the comments. The mortal realm in Lords of the Fallen is fraught with conflict instigated by capricious gods vying against one another for primacy. Although Adir, Aureus, and the Putrid Mother are the most prolific gods within the Pantheon, several other deities exist to protect reward, and inspire devotion within their followers. One of the more obscure is mysterious Menasilde, the goddess of the moon. This benevolent god is patron of a religion that preaches peace within the distant land of Wolusia. Like the church of Aureus, they view light as the warmth of life and all that is good. Dark is its opposite, the cold of death and pain. The setting of the sun marks the ascendancy of night's lurking evils. Orions hold that Orius sacrificed himself to create the sun, the moon, and the stars. But those of Eleusia believe that it was instead Menasilde who shaped the moon, a means of casting light into the darkness 
and a way for the goddess to look after her children through the cold of deep night. This we hear in the hidden lore of Embrewing Chalice. Despite the common Orian belief, most worshippers of Menacilde consider the moon to have no connection to Orius, instead believing it to be a gift bestowed upon humanity by Menacilde, one intended to watch over them benevolently during hours of darkness. Their similarities to Orism is what likely led a contingent of Volusians to Mornstead as emissaries equipped with tokens of the gods' goodwill, of which they presented to Judge Cleric and her hallowed sentinels, one token being the shield of the moonlit emissary. Menacilde holds no love for a deer, and his rogar demons defile the god's name in all ways they can, further suggesting a strong connection between the patron of the moon and Aureus. Malhu, the NPC that resides in the umbral reflection of Skyrest Bridge, holds many secrets. He is a Nohuta, the last of an ancient and enigmatic race that millennia ago rose to power in the mortal realm through their complete devotion towards the putrid mother. The Nohuta saw life as chaos, as distraction and terror, where beings were subject to the pain and torment caused by fortune's vagaries. Only in death is order restored, and to death all things must go. Therefore death is where true power lies. The putrid mother desires one thing above all else, to break the barrier separating Axiom from Umbral, so that she may consume all of the living into her abyssal maws of death. She twists the hearts and minds of her loyal servants into realizing this desire to the point of obsession. To this end, Molhu works tirelessly from two avenues. He's the creator of the Umbral Lamps, dozens of which we see discarded in Skyrest Bridge. He fills the lamps with magic, with hunger and with desire, then sets them loose into the world. The lamp bearers become unwitting pawns, drawn by the whispers of the putrid mother and the yearning of the lamp. The lamps have a way of reading their bearer's ability and fate. For those too weak or incapable of bringing about the putrid mother's arrival, they abandon to eternal death. Malhu also conducts secret experiments on the people of Mornstead. In these, he attaches umbral parasites to the souls of the young and those yet to be born. It's hinted that the powers bestowed onto the boy, protected by Haror Dervla in Revelation Depths, are due to Malhu's experimentation. He achieves near perfection in the creation of Eliane. Malhu is responsible for her grim truth. By his hand was an umbral parasite attached to the girl at birth. Its rapacious hunger is what grants her the seemingly heavenly gift of healing blood, and it's what empowers her unparalleled abilities. If the lamp bearer follows the umbral ending, Malhu achieves his purpose and willingly sacrifices his life to join his deity in the eternal void. Udaranger, a land of frozen tundra, exists far to Mornstead's parlous north. The Udarangrans are nomadic bands of tribal warriors that worship the first of the beasts as their god. Members of this shamanic and barbaric culture laid roots in Mornstead centuries ago, much to local consternation. Their descendants slowly molded into the people of Kinringer, an illustrious fief within the kingdom renowned for its martial prowess and loyalty 
traces of their northern heritage. Generations later, and we still see vestiges of Kinringer's past. The inquisitive eye can find while exploring the Fief of the Chill Curse, ships on the horizon, moored by the skeletal remains of a gargantuan creature. These may very well be the longships of Uterangren raiders or migrants, an isolated haven of respite from their bloody livelihoods. The bones of the creature hearken not only to the first beast that stalks the frozen tundra, but to the panoply of mythical and dangerous creatures that populate that distant land. We see in many Uterangren weapons and armor the frequent employment of bones of various beasts, their shamanistic ways earning scorn from the Church of Orion Radiance and their dark crusaders. Perhaps the chill north and its peoples will be made open for exploration in future content. Thanks so much for watching and listening to this video on the secrets of Lords of the Fallen. Let me know your own insights into the Kingdom of Mornstead, as well as suggestions for future videos in the comments below. And if you're a fan of Lauren's storytelling, be sure to subscribe to the channel, check out the podcast where content is uploaded frequently. I want to thank my amazing supporters over on Patreon, who make all of this possible, and I couldn't do it without their fantastic support. If you'd like to become a lore luminary for access to me, a great community, written scripts, and early video drops, head to patreon.com slash the Lorebrarians to learn more. Until next time, go forth and explore the lore.